Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this episode, Bishop talks about the life of St. Catherine Drexel. Born in 1858 to a wealthy Philadelphia family, she was always taught the importance of helping others. And after witnessing the difficult lives of Native Americans and African Americans, she made it her mission to help them which took a giant step forward after an audience with Pope Leo XIII in 1887. Then Bishop talks about Pope Francis's historic trip to Iraq, and the show wraps up with an update on COVID restrictions in the church. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our Bishop, and thank you for joining us again, Bishop. Always a pleasure. You're welcome, Kyle. How's your Lent going? It's going very well. It's Every Lent is different for me. And with family, mm-hmm. it kind of changes things. Lent as a, as a parent is different than Lent as a single person. And mm-hmm. so it's always kind of adjusting. And as the kids get older, we can kind of get a little bit more into it. We're doing a, every night we do a little prayer with the kids and they have a, a little sticker that they put up on a, an image of Jesus and the cross. So it's been good. Good. Yeah. Hey, Bishop, did you know that muggers can't catch Catholics during Lent to mug them? I, no, I didn't know that. Yeah. Why not? It's because they fast. <laughs> Thank you, Kyle. <laughs> I'll remember that. Did one of your children tell you that joke? <laughs> no, I just looked it up before the show. Uh, I'll have to share it with them, uh, though. Yeah, they'll they'll laugh. All right, well, do you have an opening prayer for us today? Yes, today, uh, March 3rd, is the Feast of St. Catherine Drexel, who's one of our uh, U.S. saints. As a matter of fact, she's the second native-born American saint after Elizabeth Ann Seton. So I'll do the, the prayer that we offer at Mass today. Okay. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit... Amen. God of love, you called St. Catherine Drexel to teach the message of the gospel and to bring the life of the Eucharist to the Native American and African American peoples. By her prayers and example, enable us to work for justice among the poor and the oppressed and keep us undivided in love in the Eucharistic community of your church. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You know, Kyle, I was thinking, I don't remember if we talked about this, but the Sisters of St. Francis in Mishawaka have this um, custom where all the sisters at New Year's or Epiphany, I forget which, receive a special saint for the year Mm -hmm. and a scripture quote. Well, anyhow, when I heard about this, I said, could I participate? Uh-huh. Actually, I was going to ask them that. They had already intended to to include me in it. So I guess they have where you pick a name out of a basket, you know. And so this year, guess who I got? Catherine Drexel. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I thought, <laughs> well, that's that's great. I uh, I mean, I she's a Pennsylvanian and uh-huh. I share her birthday. She was born on November 26th. Oh. Well, of course, she was born in 1858, but... <laughs> Um, so since I, since I got her name for this year, I had a biography of hers that I hadn't 
read totally. I skimmed it. But I decided that I would read this biography. It's called St. Catherine Drexel, Apostle to the Oppressed by huh. Lou Baldwin. And uh, so I've been reading that the last few weeks. Um, on the cover, it has a picture of her as a young woman before she was a nun. And it says, the debutante who chose poverty over wealth, the oppressed over society, and Christ over comfort. Hmm. The author is Lou Baldwin. It's a really good book. But anyhow, it was interesting. About a month ago, I was at dinner with a group of couples where the husbands are doing Exodus 90. Mm -hmm. One of the couples I, I know, they're friends of mine in Fort Wayne, Tim and Lindsay Arnold. I don't know if you know them. Uh -huh. And so Tim just happened to mention that uh, at his parish, at their parish, St. Vincent's in Fort Wayne, they had all selected a saint for the year that everybody... So they were doing the same thing uh -huh. that the sisters in, of St. Francis are doing. I, I, maybe Father Dan Scheich got the idea from them. I don't know. So I said to Tim, oh, what saint did you get? I asked them both. And Tim says, I got St. Catherine Drexel. Uh -huh. <laughs> so I said, so did I. It was, what a coincidence, you know, of all the right. uh, hundreds or thousands of saints. So we've kind of... So then... Uh, a couple weeks ago, Tim sent me a novena to do, beginning on February 22nd, all the way up till March 3rd, a, a novena to St. Catherine Drexel. So I was, I've been, I was doing that these past nine days. So anyhow, um, kind of neat, this connection with St. Catherine Drexel. Also, when I was Bishop of Harrisburg, we, well, prior to my becoming Bishop, the prior Bishop had... Um, established a parish actually was i think it was established by um two bishops before and it was for blessed catherine drexel she wasn't canonized until the year 2000 she was beatified sometime i think in i think it was 1980 yeah because i was at her beatification as a student huh. and anyhow so we had this parish in mechanicsburg pennsylvania blessed catherine drexel now it's saint catherine drexel parish but I thought it might be interesting to, I don't know how the listeners know a lot about Catherine Drexel. Do you know much about her, Kyle? I don't, no. Well, let me just kind of review a little bit in the summary form her, her life, because it really is a beautiful life of sanctity. She was born in Philadelphia of a very uh, wealthy father. She was the second daughter of Francis Drexel. And he was a well-known banker, a business partner of J.P. Morgan, so okay. um, so uh, quite wealthy. Her mother died when she was um, just a month old. Her father remarried. So this family had great wealth, but they were known in Philadelphia for their philanthropy. They taught their daughters the idea that wealth wasn't just theirs. It was to be shared with others. Mm -hmm. So she was raised, you know, in the Catholic faith and they were to help others with, with their wealth. That was something instilled in her from the time she was a young girl. Now she did travel around the United States. Her family would go on trips, including to the West, Western part of the, of the country. So as a young woman, as a girl, a young woman, she for example, saw the destitution of the Native Americans. 
And this touched her deeply, the difficult circumstances faced by Native Americans, including those on reservations. And she had, from an early age, this desire to do something to help them. In the travels also, she became aware of the difficult circumstances of African Americans also because of poverty and racism, uh, lack of education, opportunities, etc. So she, as a young woman, started to give financial support to missions, etc., and, and groups of uh, Native Americans and African Americans. Her parents died in the 1880s, so she inherited a lot of wealth. Hmm. But deep down, you know, she wasn't attached to money. She kept supporting these missions and these schools. And um, eventually she visited Rome in 1887 and had an audience with the Pope. The Pope at the time was Leo XIII. And Catherine asked the Pope to send missionaries that the Indian missions needed missionaries. And she explained how, as a layperson, she was financing these missions. The Pope said to her, or suggested to her, why don't you become a missionary? Uh-huh. Can you imagine? So, so Catherine returned home, consulted with her spiritual director, who was a bishop, and um, she made the decision that she was going to follow what the Pope suggested, that this was God's will, that, that uh, she give herself totally to God in service to Native Americans and African Americans. And she entered religious life. And she went to be a novice and was trained under the Sisters of Mercy in Pittsburgh and took her final vows. But her intention was, to, again, to serve the Native Americans and the African Americans. So her intention then was to found a religious community, a religious order of nuns who would dedicate their apostolate to sharing the message of the gospel and the life of the Eucharist among American Indians and African Americans. So she founded what were called at that time the Sisters of the Blessed Sacrament for Indians and colored people. Now they're simply known, or later they became known just as the Sisters of the Blessed Sacrament. Hmm. And Mother Catherine Drexel used her inheritance, her fortune, to fund their work. So what they did was they started a lot of, of Catholic schools for Native Americans and African Americans throughout the United States. They founded missions, a lot of them in the West and in the Southwest, but really all across the country. Back right outside of Harrisburg, they founded an Indian school in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And that's right at um, what is today St. Patrick's Parish in Carlisle. She saw the inequalities of education for African-Americans in the cities. So she opened uh, schools for African-Americans in cities. She wanted them to have a quality education. She was deeply troubled when she saw racial injustice 
and how Native Americans and African Americans were often victims of oppression. She saw them living in substandard living conditions and even denied basic constitutional rights. And she really set herself to, to change these attitudes in our country. And during her lifetime, she opened and had the sisters staff dozens and dozens of schools and missions, some of them right on reservations of the Native Americans. And this is probably the crowning of her work in education. In 1925, she founded Xavier University in New Orleans. Okay. And that's the only predominantly African-American Catholic institution of higher learning in the United States. The Sisters of the Blessed Sacrament would also visit homes and were involved in social services as well as education. They would also do visits to prisons, etc. Now, I think it's important that, and, and she used her, her wealth that she had inherited for all of this. And in fact, it was a lot of wealth. And um, she used it all for this holy work. Millions of dollars, approximately $20 million. Now, back then, it was a lot, $20 million was a lot more than it is today. Uh -huh. So get an idea. She suffered a heart attack in 1935. And she had to really give up leadership of the order because of her poor health. But she lived another 20 years, and uh, she died at the age of 96 on this day, March 3rd, 1955. When she died, there were more than 500 Sisters of the Blessed Sacrament. Um, and when you think of all the missions and schools that they founded, you know, we really, it's, it's really quite amazing how one woman can do so much. I think it's important to understand, though, her... All of this was motivated by her uh, trusting God. I mean, she wouldn't be a saint if it wasn't for that. Mm -hmm. It was uh, her deep love for Christ, especially she found in the Holy Eucharist, the source of her love for the poor and the oppressed, kind of like Mother Teresa did. Mm -hmm. You know, you think, focus on the Eucharist, but then living the Eucharist. So she reached out to the poor and reached out to African-Americans and Native Americans with the love of Christ and worked so tirelessly to combat the effects of racism. Obviously, she didn't, not everyone supported her because those with racist attitudes didn't like what she was doing. But, sure. but she was totally dependent on divine providence and um, she didn't hesitate to speak out against injustice and took public stances when there was racial discrimination. Those last 20 years of her life were primarily years of prayer, a life of adoration and contemplation because she, had, she was pretty incapacitated in those latter years. She was very immobile. So she's left us a great legacy, and I think as Americans, we can uh, be inspired by this amazing woman a missionary, a nun, a saint, who uh, gave all of her wealth for the service of others. So we pray that she'll intercede for us and, and for the church in our country. And you mentioned Mother Teresa. It really does seem like a, another version of 
Mother Teresa's story of of just totally devoting everything and then just starting this huge movement. You know, I, I mean, so many sisters kind of following in her example and and taking up that charge, that mission, but a very different mission than St. Teresa of Calcutta's. Yes, yes, because it was really focused on these two groups, mm -hmm. Native Americans and African Americans, but very similar uh, to, you know, and, and of course, founding of schools, which mm -hmm. the Missionaries of Charity don't do. You know, I remember some years ago visiting the mother house of the Sisters of the Blessed Sacrament in Ben Salem, which is a suburb of Philadelphia. And uh, in the crypt of their chapel, that's where Mother Catherine Drexel is buried. And I remember spending a good amount of time sitting there and praying before her tomb and uh, just being very moved during that experience of prayer. You know, the Sisters of Blessed Sacrament have had a decline in religious vocations. That's very sad. So they had to sell the mother house. And just a couple years ago, her body was moved, St. Catherine Drexel's body was was moved before they sold the the mother house to the cathedral in Philadelphia, the cathedral of Saints Peter and Paul. So now they have an altar with her uh, her tomb in the cathedral in Philadelphia. So if anyone's ever visiting Philadelphia, that's a place I highly recommend visiting and doing a little pilgrimage, praying at the tomb of St. Catherine Drexel in the cathedral there. We also have another saint in Philadelphia, St. John Newman, who was a bishop, and he's at old St. Peter's Church in Philadelphia. So you could visit two saints, two U.S. saints yeah. in uh, in the city of brotherly love. There you go. Well, another thing that just kind of jumps out at me as you tell that story is her seeing a need and then saying, I'm going to do something about it. And so often I think we think, well, I'm just one person. How How big of a difference can I make in this area? And she shows that one person can make a huge difference. Now she had, you know, a, a bunch of wealth that she was able to help make it happen, but also just inspiring people to to join in the mission. You know, it wasn't her alone that was doing that, starting up all these churches, but her action inspired other people to act as well. And I think sometimes we don't take that jump, and we don't we don't trust God that that He can do great things through us. And she's proof that you can. Yeah, exactly. And she was open to God's will because it really wasn't her idea to start a religious community. I mean, she wanted to help and share her wealth and, and support the missions, but it was only when she met with the Pope that he said, well, why don't you become a missionary? Right. <laughs> and I mean, I, I can imagine what she must have thought. I mean, she didn't go there to ask the Pope about that. So she just took that to prayer and was able to discern her vocation to become a missionary herself and not only to become a religious sister, but to found a religious community of nuns who would devote their lives to the service of African and Native Americans. Uh, I think she's, you know, shows us the importance of just being open to God's will. Sometimes we don't know what his plan for us might be. And yet we can discover it sometimes through the suggestions of others. Mm -hmm. Now, not most of us get to meet with the Pope and the right. Pope says, why don't you think about this? That was, that was kind of unique. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, we can definitely ask St. Catherine Drexel to pray for us today on her feast day and throughout our lives. I think a great intercessor for us as we are hopefully inspired to meet the needs of the world as well. And speaking of missionaries and of popes, it was announced that Pope Francis is going to be traveling to Iraq in March and thought maybe you could chime in. I, as far as I understand, this is the first time a modern pope has gone to Iraq. I think St. John Paul II was supposed to go, but they couldn't ensure his safety. Uh, Saddam Hussein's people said, yeah, we can't, we can't guarantee that you'll be safe here. And so that got yeah. canceled. But uh, what, what, is, what do you expect about the, the pope's visit to Iraq? Well, he's the first pope of, of, in all history to, to visit Iraq. As you said, it was in the Jubilee year 2000 when Pope John Paul II wanted to visit Iraq because of the Jubilee year, and that was kind of where Abraham is from, Ur, the city of Ur of the Chaldeans. It's just in ruins now. That's in present-day Iraq. So the Pope was going there to the Holy Land and to Egypt. So okay. the place of Abraham, the place of where Moses was, and then Jerusalem itself. So he was able to go to Egypt and to the Holy Land, but but wasn't able to go to Iraq. And then, of course, we had the the Iraq War and everything else. So actually, this, this Friday, March 5th, the Pope will be leaving, and he'll be there just a few days, the 5th to the 8th. He'll fly to Baghdad, where he'll meet with the civil authorities, and on Friday he's supposed to meet with the priests and religious seminarians, catechists in Baghdad, the capital of Iraq. While he's he's going to um, meet with the bishops and priests and religious in the Cathedral of Our Lady of Deliverance <laughs> in Baghdad. I was really interested when I read that because you might remember that uh, it's the Syri Syriac Catholic Cathedral. I want to talk a little bit about Catholics and Christians in Iraq. Okay. I think that would be interesting for the listeners. But one of the Catholic churches, one of the Eastern Catholic churches, is this is the Syrian Catholic Church, and their cathedral in Baghdad is Our Lady of Deliverance. You might remember back in two thousand ten. That was the same cathedral that ISIS attacked mm. and killed during mass, during the liturgy, killed two priests and 48 lay people during mass. Mm. And now we have, so, so 50 martyrs. That's the cathedral where Pope Francis will speak to the religious and the priests. I th I'm sure he's going to talk about those who were massacred. Sure. Um, during mass, but I think it might be interesting to to learn a little bit about the uh, Catholic Church in Iraq. When we think about the Catholic Church in Iraq, the first church that that comes to mind is the Chaldean Catholic Church, and that's one of the Eastern Catholic churches. As we talked about on this show in the past, there are twenty three autonomous Eastern Catholic churches that are in full communion with the Pope. Well, this is one of them, and it's the largest of the Christian groups in the nation of Iraq, the Chaldean Catholic Church. Again, it's in full communion with Rome. Eighty percent of Iraqi Christians are Chaldeans. 
and the majority of of them are are Catholic, and it, it's headquartered in Baghdad. That's the the main seat of the Chaldean Catholic Church. The Archbishop is really a called the Patriarch. His official title is Patriarch of Babylon of the Chaldeans, and he's a cardinal, Cardinal Luis Rafael Sacco. He's the current head of the Chaldean Catholic Church. I don't know if you've ever been to Detroit, but that's the largest population of Chaldeans outside of Iraq is in Detroit, Michigan. There's about 200,000 Chaldean Catholics. And then about 100,000 Chaldeans live in San Diego. A lot emigrated because of the persecution under ISIS and because of the the dangers to Christians in Iraq. Mm -hmm. But there's some other Catholics besides the Chaldean. By the way, before ISIS took over and, you know, and didn't take over the whole country, but uh, a sizable part of the country, there were over a million and a half Christians in Iraq, you know, now there's probably about 250,000, if that, left. Is that because they left Iraq or have converted or were killed? Because they've left Iraq. I mean, some were killed. So for centuries, actually the church in Iraq began really in the first century. It was the apostles themselves who brought Christianity to Iraq. So, you know, for 2,000 years, there has been a, a strong Christian presence in Iraq. And to see how its population has been decimated from one and a half million Christians, again, the great majority being Catholic, to only about a quarter of a million now. Um, the largest group of the Christians are the Chaldeans. As I said, there are 80% of the Christians in Iraq are Chaldeans. The second largest group, which is 10% of Iraqi Christians, are the Syriacs. As I mentioned, on March 5th, the Pope will visit the Syriac Catholic Cathedral of Our Lady of Deliverance in Baghdad. So around 10% of the population of Iraqi Christians are Syriac Catholics. There's some Syriac Orthodox as well, but most are Syriac Catholics. And by the way, both the Chaldeans and the Syriacs, language descends from Aramaic, which is the language that Jesus spoke. That's really Hmm. interesting. But speaking of the Syriac Christians and the Syriac Catholics, there were some towns in Iraq that were largely Syriac Catholic. For example, the town of Karakosh. It's one of the Christian villages in the Nineveh Plains. The Nineveh Plains is an area of Iraq that had, you know, a lot of Christian towns and villages, and they were really decimated by ISIS. That town of Karakash is 20 miles southeast of the city of Mosul, and it was very much a Syriac Catholic village. The Pope will visit there. I was glad to see that that was on his itinerary. He'll visit the Karakash community. And he's going to visit them in a church, the Church of the Immaculate Conception, which, was, which ISIS had desecrated and burned a lot of it. It's been since re, refurbished and all that. But I was really happy that the Pope was, was going to go to the Nineveh Plains 
this area with all these Christian towns and villages that had been hurt so much by ISIS. And again, a lot of the population fled. They fled to Jordan, to Lebanon. Some were admitted as refugees to the United States. I don't really know how many have remained in Karakash. There were probably about 50,000 Christians there before ISIS. It, um, it's a lot less now. The Syriac Christians in Iraq also have a patriarch and who's head of the Syriac Catholic Church. Now that Syriac Catholic Church is based in Lebanon, the country of Lebanon, but again, it has you know, had this sizable number also in Iraq. And the patriarch is kind of the head of all the different Syriac congregations. The third largest group is only 5% though, of Iraqi Christians are the Assyrians. So it's kind of complicated when you think about it. So you have the Chaldeans, then you know you have the Syriacs, but then there are also the Assyrians, including the Assyrian Church of the East, which is not in communion with Rome. Oh, okay. But has good relationships with 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 the Catholic Church. And they're headquartered in a, a city called Erbil, E-R-B-I-L. So Erbil is one of the places that um, Pope Francis will be visiting while he's in Iraq. So he's really getting around in those three days. Uh -huh. So on Sunday, this coming Sunday, he'll go to Erbil and uh, meet with government authorities. And that's really, Erbil is, it's in the Kurdistan region of Iraq. It's north and east of Mosul. It's the capital of the Kurdish region. And you know how the Kurds, you know, were very helpful in the fight against uh, ISIS. And um, there's a Catholic archdiocese there, Chaldean Catholic. And the archbishop has been here in the United States to talk about the situation of Iraqi Christians a lot. His name is Archbishop Bashar Warda. So the Pope, when he goes to this region of Iraqi Kurdistan, he'll do some prayers there in Erbil. He's going to celebrate mass in the stadium in the afternoon, Sunday afternoon. I, that, that's kind of, I think, the biggest public mass he'll have while he's in Iraq. After ISIS was defeated, Erbil really became like the center for Christians in Iraq. Uh, so it's appropriate the Pope is having mass there. Many of those who were in these smaller towns in the Nineveh plains that were decimated by ISIS fled to the city of Erbil. It's the capital of the Kurdish, Kurdish region. Anyhow, uh, I mentioned Archbishop Warda. He's, he's the Archbishop of the Chaldean Catholic Archdiocese of Erbil. There's also um, some smaller groups of Christians. About 3% of Iraq's Christians are Armenian. As you might know, most are Armenians, they were native to Armenia, which is in present-day Turkey, and they had immigrated to Iraq, I think, after the genocide in, in uh, World War I. And there's some Arab Christians, just about 2% of Iraq's Christians are Arab. ISIS drove out the uh, Armenian and Arab Christians from the city of Mosul, where most of them were as well as driving out the Chaldeans and the Syriac Christians. There's not a lot of Armenian Christians left in Iraq. There were probably 45,000 before ISIS. There's estimated to be only about 4,000 now. So when you think about the Christians of Iraq, I wish the whole world 
you know, there's been a lot of publicity. The Knights of Columbus have been great in supporting the church in Iraq. I think the average American maybe doesn't know much about Christianity in Iraq. I hope we continue to support them with our prayers and financially. I think a lot who who left won't go back because there's still dangers there. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't know how long it's going to be, you know, peaceful. And, um, the, you know, I think of all those Christian towns in the Nineveh Plains, there's really not a whole lot left. I will say one thing that I was really, really kind of amazing. I, I mentioned how a lot fled from the Nineveh Plains to the city of Erbil. Well, back in 2015, just six years ago, Archbishop Warda began a, a new Catholic university in Erbil. Kind of amazing with all this huh. Christians fleeing and all that, that he was planning for the future and said that if we're going to have a future, it's important that our Catholic people be educated that the Catholic youth be educated. So he started a Catholic university. It's gotten off the ground Hmm. with hopes of growing in coming years. We'll have to see what happens. But they really want to keep that Christian presence in Iraq. And we'll have to see, I I hope and pray, that that it will continue. We have to continue to, uh, to pray for that. Of course, with Pope Francis going there, he'll also be, I'm sure, trying to promote interreligious dialogue and peace and uh, fraternity. During his visit, he's going to visit uh, with the Grand Ayatollah Sayyid Ali al-Husaymi al-Astani in Najaf, which is about 100 miles south of Baghdad. That's kind of like the main pilgrimage site for Shia Muslims in Iraq. When he's at this, uh, this place, Najaf, or also called Nasiriyah, it's on the Euphrates River. It's it's real near where Abraham came from, huh. so near the near the ruins of Ur. So that the Pope is going to go there and meet with the Muslim Shia Muslim leader. I'm sure that will get a lot of press. That's on Saturday, this Saturday, March sixth. And when he finishes meeting with the uh, with this uh, Ayatollah. He'll go back to Baghdad in the afternoon. He's going to have mass at the Chaldean Cathedral in Baghdad at St. Joseph Cathedral. So I'm going to be following it if I if I can. I hope there's some coverage. I hope that there's good coverage in the media mm-hmm. because it's very significant, this first apostolic visit of a, of a pope to Iraq from which our father in faith, you know, the patriarch Abraham yeah. uh, came from. Well, we won't have time in this episode, but maybe something in the future that we could talk about is the differences between these different churches. You know, is it doctrinal differences? Is it the way they celebrate liturgy? Things like that. It might be kind of interesting to to break down some of the differences of these different churches that are in union with the Catholic Church. And so, uh, maybe yeah. we'll, that'll be a future episode. And I'll just say it's not really doctrinal. It's more tr- different traditions and okay. liturgical differences. Yeah, it's some differences in spirituality, but but it's the same same faith. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting the the uh with the pope going there, there's a logo for this apostolic visit. Uh-huh. And it has Pope Francis depicted in front of an outline of of the of Iraq with the Tigris and Euphrates rivers and a palm tree. And and there's a dove carrying an olive branch flying over the Vatican and Iraqi flags. It's kind of a neat logo. And there's also a mo- motto for his visit, which is, you are all brothers. 
comes from Matthew chapter 23, verse 8. Hmm. And it's written above in three languages. You are all brothers, Arabic, Chaldean, and Kurdish. So it's really a, a, a mission of peace and trying to bring you know, hope and solidarity to the people there, especially to the Christians, but also to the Muslims. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, if you have any questions for Bishop, you can go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, we'll talk about the current state of the church regarding COVID restrictions and something happening in every church here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Notre Dame Federal Credit Union has a special mission to serve the Catholic Church in America. In 2020 alone, we've served over 800 parishes, schools, and nonprofits in more than 25 dioceses nationwide. We are a member-owned, not-for-profit cooperative, working hard to create a national Catholic financial alternative to the for-profit banks. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop and thought, you know, it's, I can't believe this, but it's been a year since the original restrictions were put in place due to COVID and thought maybe you give us an update. I don't know if there's any plans on when the mass dispensation might end or when we might start singing at mass again? Well, we've already been singing at mass the past month, unless maybe your parish, I don't know, but but we uh, are, have been allowing singing at our masses for over a month, I think. Uh, okay. You know, people still have to wear the face masks while singing and, and not singing loud, boisterous ways <laughs> to spread, uh, you know, but more quiet singing. I don't know yet when the uh, dispensation from the uh, requirement to attend Mass on Sunday uh, will end, but, you know, the Indiana bishops, we kind of did this together and we haven't talked about it recently. I'm hoping that we'll be able to lift the dispensation sooner rather than later, Mm -hmm. but especially as more and more of the population is, is vaccinated and where uh, there's a certain level of herd immunity, mm-hmm. I think at that point, the dispensation will be lifted. Okay. Well, and then also the U.S. Bishops Conference recently announced that it's canceling the third consecutive in-person gathering scheduled for June. I assume it's going to be virtual instead? Correct. It was supposed to be in Denver, our spring meeting, our June meeting. So, you're right. It's our third plenary meeting that's been via Zoom. Mm-hmm. So I kind of miss getting together with my brother bishops. You know, you kind of miss out on the the opportunity to socialize a bit or to have some meals together. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm I expect that um, our November meeting hopefully will be in person, uh-huh. but the June meeting will be virtual. And is that? problematic? Like, does it prevent you from doing certain things that you would normally be able to do if you were in person? I mean, I think the meetings go faster. Uh, (laughs) You know, I would say that. And they do kind of limit a little bit more the agenda. But in some ways, when a bishop speaks during a virtual meeting, but 
you know, you, you can see him up close on the screen. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, talking like 200 bishops, you know, active bishops. <laughs> and, you know, then there's retired bishops in addition. So, you know, you don't feel too inclined to maybe raise your hand, et cetera, because, it, it, you know, how many hours can you sit in front of a computer screen? You know, right. it, does get it does get a little uh, tiring. Do you multitask? Are you oh, answering I, I, emails? Oh, I can't reveal, I can't <laughs> reveal that. <laughs> well, yeah, I'll confess. I mean, there are some things that I'm very interested in and that have my full attention, but uh -huh. if someone's just giving a kind of a little boring report, I might be answering emails <laughs> on the side. I'll, I'll confess to that. Yeah, or I might be getting up and getting a sandwich. Yeah, right. I, I'm sure you're not the first. <laughs> Well, another thing, we only have a few minutes here, but the Pope has a Lenten message that was specifically encouraging Catholics to practice charity this year by caring for those affected with COVID. And maybe I could just read it and then you can comment on it. He said, to experience Lent with love means caring for those who suffer or feel abandoned and fearful because of the COVID-19 pandemic. In these days of deep uncertainty about the future, let us keep in mind the Lord's word to his servant. Fear not, for I have redeemed you, which comes from Isaiah 43.1. In our charity, may we speak words of reassurance and help others to realize that God loves them as sons and daughters. Yeah, great quote. And this need to respond to those that are, are in fear or lonely or whatever. Do you, do you see this as being a big need in our diocese? Yeah, I mean, I think there's certainly, you know, people who are homebound, uh, people in nursing homes. I had a, a gathering, I gave a talk with the uh, high school youth group at St. Jude Parish in, in Fort Wayne a week or two ago. And I talked to them about living Lent with love. Hmm. You know, and when you think about our penances, what's, what's most fundamental is, are we loving, mm -hmm. you know? And so I, I encourage them in that way, and I think the, the young people really responded to that. You know, prayer is an expression of our love for God. Almsgiving is an expression of love for those in need. Even fasting, you know, is, is for others and caring for those who suffer. So I kind of challenge the young people to every day, maybe at the beginning of the day, beginning their day with prayer, to think, to ask that question, how am I going to love today? Mm-hmm. You know, who am I going to reach out to with the love of Christ? And I think especially during the pandemic, when there are people who are feeling abandoned or feeling depressed, maybe anxious, that, that we kind of try to bring Christ's peace to them. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, just sometimes speaking words that show that we care for them. So, uh, yeah, I think that's good for us during Lent to think about. All right. One last thing to mention that Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, March 9th, from 6 to 8 p.m., we have the light is on for you. And so confession will be available in every parish in the diocese. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. Every parish, you know, I think is is participating. They're, you know, we try to do it as a total diocese. Mm -hmm. So wonderful. I remember last year, thank God, it it was before the shutdown, mm -hmm. uh, so we were able to have the light is on for you last year, and this year, March 9th, from 6 to 8 p.m., I encourage everybody to to go to confession sometime during Lent, and uh, but you'll 
everyone knows that all the churches are open, the light is on for you that night, if you can, that's a great time to go to go to confession, March 9th from 6 to 8 p.m. All right. And I'm sure there's all the precautions we made for those going to confession. Correct. Yeah. I mean, face masks are obviously important and mm-hmm. and trying to keep a distance when one is in line for confession. You know, people have really been cooperative with this. You know, it's not been a problem in our diocese. People, uh, you know, are, are pretty used to it now. Sure. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bishop. If people have questions for Bishop, you can go and shoot a text to the Holy Cross College text line, which is 260-436-9598. And before we go, could we get your Episcopal blessing? Yes. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Take care. If you have a question for Bishop to answer, a show idea, or just feedback for us, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop and fill out the form. Catch episodes anytime by searching for Truth in Charity on your favorite podcast app. Truth in Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.